Hi there, you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, recorded here in Sydney, Australia, and zoomed around the world through iTunes or Stitcher, or if you're getting your podcasts. Thanks for joining me. My name's Matt Wakeling, and uh, here we are at another episode, episode number 41. We're having a good time here at the Guitar Speak podcast, and today we speak to an amazing guitar player, one of my teenage idols as a guitar player, uh, Brett Garsard from the John Farnham Band and, of course, his amazing solo career. Now, Brett's been mentioned on this podcast a few times by some of our guests, um, which is really testament to the great influence he has had on the guitar landscape and particularly for a certain generation of Australian guitarists. Uh, There was a a time in the late 80s when uh, Brett blew our minds. (laughs) His Let Me Out guitar solo on a live television uh, broadcast was it was kind of our eruption, really, down here, down under. So it was cool to talk about about that as well as his entire career. Now it turns out Brett has a connection with our guest from last week's show, Joe Elliott. They were both in LA around the same time and crossed paths at the Guitar Institute of Technology. So that was kind of cool too. And um, yeah, if you haven't heard our interview with Joe Elliott, please check that out. That's That was a great episode. I really enjoyed meeting Joe and um, really good guy and great player. His new album sounds fantastic. So thanks again to Joe for last week's episode. We've received, uh, there's been lots of great feedback about that one. Of course, you can check out any of our old episodes. Just hop onto iTunes or guitarspeakpodcast.libson.com and you'll be there. All right, now, Brett Garsett, before we speak to the man, I want you to hear some of his guitar playing. Here's a part of a track called Dark Matter from the album of the same name. Check it out.
Brett Garson, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Oh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. Our great pleasure, definitely. Brett, what, what got you started on guitar in the first place? Um, my brother, uh, my older brother had a guitar under the bed. It was, uh, I'm actually looking at it right now, it's hanging on the wall. Wow. Um, a Maxim by Maton. So it's a sort of a semi-acoustic looking, looking, almost looks like a jazz box, really. And uh, yeah, I used to, he, he had to take over the family farm at a very young age because our, our father passed away. I think I was only about six and my brother John was about 16, so he had to become a man really quick and had no more time for guitars. And um, I used to get the thing out and look at it and strum it and try and figure it out. And I had a, my brother-in-law, Greg, used to play and he tuned it up for me. And uh, so I'd get it out and look at it. And my brother, my brother was such a huge guitar fan. He had all the great albums like Hendrix, Zeppelin, Purple, you name it. So mm-hmm. Santana, Pink Floyd, you know, it was all there. So... I guess it was inevitable that I'd want to get lessons and find out how to drive this thing. Okay, yeah. And when um when did you start actually playing, like getting the lessons or what have you? I think I think I was about I think I was about eleven. So I was born in sixty three, so that means about seventy four. Might have been earlier than that. It's really hard for me to put a timeline on it. And every time I try to put a timeline on it, I get confused. So, sure. so, but it was yeah, someone somewhere around the early to mid seventies, I guess. Okay. Well, wow. There's a lot of great guitar music going on there. Were there any early influences that that caught your attention? Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's well documented that we were having a family party, and and my other brother-in-law uh, put on Deep Purple in Rock, and uh, it just stopped me in my tracks. And I said to said to my brother, "Who's this?" And he said, "It's Deep Purple. They're the loudest band in the world." And I was like, "Sale." So you know, <laughs> I'll take that. And yeah, here in Blackmore's opening salvo to Speed King. I mean, yeah, geez, we wouldn't want to play guitar after hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And um, were the lessons you were getting um, send you in that direction? So were you learning rock stuff straight out? Well, it, I. I Actually got lessons off a guy. Now, now what was his name? Uh, I feel terrible. I'm having a mental blank right now because he was quite a legend around around town here, and a really nice guy. Only a young dude, and I only took four lessons off him. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And but the very first lesson, he said, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "I want to play lead guitar." That was pretty much it. So, and he went, "Okay." So the first thing he did was put light strings on my guitar. I had, there were cheese slices on there, so. Uh, he uh, took them off and put some lighter gauge strings on there. And he, he wrote a, a – oh, God, his name's almost coming. Jeff Lyons was his name. Okay, okay so there we go. I had to give Jeff some acknowledgement there. Um, and he drew – he did something quite profound on the very first lesson. He drew a picture of my left hand and above every uh, finger except for the thumb, of course. He, he did a one, two, three, four, and he went four fingers, four frets. So it was great. Like right on that very first lesson, he – made me aware of the fact that I should be training all my fingers as opposed to favoring, say, the, the first three like the yeah, blues players do. You sure. know what I mean? It's yeah, a, definitely. So, yeah, it was. Uh, he, he taught me some tunes, like just some little riffs and things like that. And I, I wish I'd stuck with him because I think it would have really done me some good, but, but I got sidetracked for some reason and then just ended up teaching myself. Okay. And um, what, what sort of stuff were you, were you learning or what were you trying to work out yourself? Oh, well, you know, obviously I was... All I wanted to play was every Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix song ever written. But <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was kind of in the deep end. But the, the very first song I ever learned was uh, Pictures of Matchstick Men by Status Quo. Okay. 
and just got, it's got this very simple opening riff. And because um, I used to get the guitar out and I'd plunk away on it, and I, you know, I've quickly figured out this before I even took the lessons. I figured out, okay, so you you move this way, the notes get high. You move that way, the notes get lower. That seems pretty self-explanatory. And and I remember listening to this opening riff to this song, and I'm going, man, how hard could it be? It's only a few notes. And so I just kept poking around until I found the first note. Uh-huh. And I figured it out. And that was the very first song I <laughs> transcribed, if you want to put it that way. So. That's great. That's great. Were you doing music at school or were you doing any bands or anything around this time? Well, there was no music at school. I mean, back in those days, musical education in a country school, I mean, forget about it, you know. There was no time for anything as flippant as that. But, uh, but um, my cousin, Andrew, uh, he actually came up to visit me one day. We're just kids, you know. He rode his bike up to the house and I showed him the guitar. Hey, check this out. And I played him the four lessons that I got from Jeff that I'd been practicing and and he immediately just said, we've got to form a band, that's it. And so it's all thanks to Andrew, really. I mean, he he took the initiative and he actually had a job. He left school early and had a job. So he had some cash and he invested in a, a little amp and, and uh, bought another guitar and and off we went so that's great yeah so him and i just started off mucking around learning creed's clearwater revival songs and Uh things like that and and uh, he actually ended up buying the maiden off me okay and then i bought i bought this awful guitar it was like a sakai or a saki which is sakai should have been but (laughs) um i was enthralled with it because it had a whammy bar on it okay that's got it that's got to be great and which I promptly broke. I think I broke it within about two months of just be trying to do the Richie Blackmore on it. And, uh, <laughs> broke, but uh, well, he went through a few um, tremolo arms. I think. I think that was sort of his trademark as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I can see why. You it's know, because yeah, trying to trying to copy the guy, just break him. <laughs> so. But uh, yeah, Andrew and I would jam together, and eventually we grabbed my cousin Neil, and uh, his brother was actually a professional muso. His brother. Uh, Ron Robertson was playing with um, who was he playing with? Uh, well, he was he ended up playing with uh, Broderick Smith for quite a while. So uh, and various other bands. So uh, he loaned Neil a bass and an amp, and uh, we grabbed our friend Ken and said, "You're the drummer. Go buy a drum kit." So you know he was, and that was it. So I sort of learned how to play within the context of a band, which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. just couldn't. That, that's the it's the best way to learn. The only downside, of course, was because I was teaching myself and there was no, trust me, there was no one around to ask any in-depth questions. We were all as in the dark as each other, unfortunately. So even to this day, there's gaps in my knowledge that I'm just quite frankly ashamed of. But, uh, oh, well, I guess you you got to roll with it. What can you do? You know. Yeah, I think you've negotiated all that stuff okay so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. When did... Um... When did you get into fusion? Because um, that's a big part of your, your sound. And even as a young guitarist, once you got the Farnham gig, those kind of influences were evident. What what sort of fusion did you end up discovering? And how did you how did you stumble across this stuff? Yeah, stumbled across it literally. Um, well, yeah, I was my I got I got a lot of brother-in-laws. I had four sisters, so uh, okay. So yeah, my brother-in-laws play a, a large role in my life. And my brother-in-law Wayne McKay. Uh, is even to this day is a fantastic drummer like he, he could have easily have been a professional musician but he became a family man at an early age and mm-hmm. much to his credit just decided to play music for fun and and do you know sort of the odd gig every now and then but 
but he still has the most amazing record collection. And I would go and stay with uh, him and my sister over the Christmas holidays, and I'd just spend all day burrowing through his albums and cassettes. And one day I went looking and found a copy of Wired by Jeff Beck. Okay. And so I looked at it and went, well, it's a guy with a guitar. How bad could it be? And my <laughs> God, I put that, you know, lead boots hit me in the face. And it was it was like Speed King all over again. And right then and there, it was all about Jeff Beck. So, yep. and, and I'd say that was, that was definitely the first introduction to music other than straight rock. Okay, yep, yep. You know, with, with, with odd time signatures and and chord changes, things like that. Like, And it was a really nice, gentle way to get into it. I mean, if I heard Mahavishnu Orchestra straight away, I probably would have, wouldn't have got it, you know what I mean? Okay, it was a, yeah. Yeah, the Jeff Beck stuff was a brilliant way to be eased into the fusion sound. Yeah. Cool. And were you working out um, tunes from that record? Yeah, I was trying to learn all the riffs, all the songs. I, I remember I, I worked out his version of Good Pie, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat almost mm-hmm. note for note. But, of course, the downside is you have no idea why these notes work. What are the chords? The chords were just agony, trying to figure those out by ear. I destroyed all my LPs from putting the needle back and forth so many times. And, and like, from Jeff Beck, I, I got into uh, Larry Carlton. He was the next guy because, my once again, my brother-in-law, Wayne, was working in a music store, and he started giving me copies of Guitar Player magazine. Okay. And I just thought, man, this is unbelievable. A, a magazine devoted to guitar. How good is this? Yeah, I, yeah. I thought you could only get you know, House and Garden and stuff like that. <laughs> That's great. New, new idea. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it was like literally the second copy of that magazine he gave me. So I guess we're talking 78, something like that, 79. Okay. And Larry was on the cover. And, uh, and I read the interview just over and over and over, but I'd never heard any of his music. And mm-hmm. I was enthralled with what he was talking about. He was talking about superimposing triads, and all of which fascinated me but meant nothing to me because I couldn't figure it out. I had okay. no idea. But I stumbled into a music store, and there's Larry's first album, the one with Room 335 on it. Right. And I grabbed it, and that was the end of it. So, you know, yeah. And then after that, I, uh, Eddie Van Halen came along. And, of course, everyone loved Eddie. How could you not? Mm-hmm. And through an Eddie interview, he talked about Alan Holdsworth. And so okay, I, sussed yeah. out, I sussed out the first UK album with In the Dead of Night on it and all that sort of stuff. And, and I think that was, my, that was my introduction to really progressive music, you know, okay. music, that, music that really was starting to do my head in. But, yep. uh, and I remember it was a good, a good example of how you should give – you've got to give music a chance. Like I listened to that album – the first time I heard it, I thought, I, I, I think I must be losing my mind if, I, if I'm going to call this stuff music, because it was just so alien to me. Sure. And then after about the sixth listen, I, I realized it was an album I couldn't live without. I just loved it. And, and so I learned that you've got to, you've got to give it advanced, well, music that's advanced to your ears, you've got to give it a chance. You know, it may, may soak in and you turn out you love it. Yeah, sure. How old were you around um, when you're really d- digging deep into this stuff? Um, I think I was about 16. Okay. 16 or 17. And like I said, you know, it, all I could do was just listen to it and let the influence of it wash over me. And then I'd, I'd do what I could with that influence. It's not like I couldn't walk down the road to a professional guitar player or somebody and say, what scales are these guys using, you know? Yeah, sure. So it was just, it was kind of heartbreaking in that way. Like I tried to find teachers around this area but uh there was just no one 
you know there was no one i could talk to about it and i'll guarantee i was the only guy listening to that music like no one else was i was really lucky that my i became good friends with the guy who worked in our local record store here yeah and uh ian bloom and bloomy and uh and Bloomy was amazing. Like, I'd go in with these magazines and say, find me this album, Bloomy. And, and you know, two weeks later, he'd have got it from America. Oh, so I don't, know how the, I don't know how the hell he did it, but he <laughs> did it. So, yeah, he really played a big role in, in me finding this music. That's awesome. Is, um, is your legato technique developing around this stage when you're trying to, especially, like, look, listening well, to Holdsworth and even Eddie, who, who was, was well, I mean, I was a, a that year? I was a legato player from day one. That's the whole point, is, like... Mm-hmm. Like I played legato from day one. That was it. No one taught it to me. No one said, hey, you don't have to pick all the notes, you know. And the story goes, and this is a true story, and it also shows you how literally young people take things. And I, I sort of understand why young people probably get affected so severely by social media and all the garbage they're subjected to now. If I read something in a magazine that one of my heroes said, it was the gospel. That was it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm reading an interview by Frank Zappa. I was a big Frank Zappa fan as well. And uh, and someone mentioned just they, they thought Frank was a great guitar player. And Frank Frank said, well, I'm not really a good guitar player because I don't pick every note. And already I'm going, uh-oh. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll maybe pick one and then play the next three with just the fingers on my left hand. And I went, oh, my God. I thought, you know, everyone was saying I was a really good player and, and – I mean, I never really thought that, but but I was I appreciated the fact that they thought that. And upon reading this, I thought, oh my God, I'm a complete charlatan. I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> I thought I knew it. I try to teach myself. I'll do it wrong. And uh, and I, you know, I, I immediately grabbed the guitar and tried to pick every note and realised I was crap at it. So uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was a it was a terrible time actually. And then just luckily. It wasn't long after that, because then I listened to Eddie Van Halen on closer mm-hmm. inspection and realised he was picking every note. Eddie wasn't doing much legato stuff. He was a good, he's a great picker. Okay. You know? All those triplets he was doing, he picks all of it. Yeah, I went, sure. I've blown it. You know, I've got to start again. And then luckily he mentioned Alan and I grabbed the UK album. I thought, well, I wonder what this fella sounds like. And the minute I heard him play, I recognised that sound. I recognised the legato sound. And I went, okay, there is no right or wrong way. You you do what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. And that's what I took from that. So thank God yeah, for that. Yeah. You know, I, I really, you know, I almost blew it there. So, that's... and it just goes to show you where, you know, young young people, they, people say things to them. They might say things to them out of spite or meanness or whatever. And they take that stuff on board. You know, it's got to be careful what you say to young people. Absolutely. Yeah. The yeah. um, That's a good lesson though, on, on the positive side though, that you've, you know, you found your own way and and I guess you were doubting a little bit from that story, but then, then you hear Holdsworth and you think, oh, okay, I can I can relate to this and, and I've actually, I'm on the right track here. Well, and, and luckily, Alan is so different, you know. I mean, it's he's not only a phenomenal musician, but he's different. He's so radically different to anyone else I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you know, he's not so different now because scumbags like me have grown up trying to copy <laughs> the guy, you know. <laughs> But um, doing a, a lousy job of it. But, um, but you know, yeah, uh, luckily it didn't come from someone who could just play fast or something, you know. I went, I've never heard anyone that sounds like this guy before. And that's when I realised, like, 
you know, if you if you do your own thing, you may find your own sound. I mean, I knew that from straight away. I knew that right off the top that whenever I heard my favourite players, like if I heard Santana on the radio, I might as well have been looking at the guy, you know, uh -huh. yeah. or Blackmore or Page or Hendrix, anybody, you name it. Like their personalities were so embedded in every note they played. In, in just their vibrato, you know, I could pick them a mile away. Sure. And I thought, that's the goal. You've got to have your sound. You've got to have your own thing. And I guess later on when, especially when Eddie came out and people were just going out of their way to copy him note for note, and it got worse with Vi and Satriani and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, that's always just bewildered me. But I, I guess some people just, yeah, I guess maybe they don't hear anything inside. I don't know. Maybe they have to copy other people to the point where they just become a clone and, as Kenny Wayne Shepherd proved, you can have a career doing that. So <laughs> there you go. With um, just still on your legato, if I may, that when I hear you, it, it sounds super legato. But when I watch you play, I actually realise you are you are picking a lot of the notes, but it, you're using hybrid picking, and yeah. your right hand dynamics are so in control. Um, it still sounds very very smooth. It seems like you can control the attack of each note as much as you want or not. Yeah, I think I'd, I think if you if you sat down and added it up, I'd probably pick about eighty percent of everything I play, because um, I my my flat pick actually plays a big role in it as well. But uh -huh. um, but but see, having said that, um, I'm a lousy flat picker. I mean, if I if I had to pick everything, then I, I can't play anything. Yeah. My picking technique is thoroughly embedded in what I do. Mm -hmm. It's got you know, it's got nothing to do with you could give me the most beginner thing to alternate pick and I would suck at it. I'll tell you that right off the bat. So <laughs> whereas just let me do my thing and it's, it's a cohesive thing. Yeah, but, sure. uh, yeah. Take any element away. Even my legato technique sucks. You know, I mean, I mean, compared to, well, I reckon, I reckon Michael Dolce's legato techniques infinitely better than mine. I mean, Alan Holdsworth's is the legato technique. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I guess mine's more of a, hodgepodge of everything rolled into this thing yeah <laughs> I, I guess i think the other players would say the same thing as well i think i know michael has said the same um speaking speaking of your influence on him and i'm sure holdsworth got it from somewhere wasn't it um wasn't he trying to sound more like a horn player in his phrasing than a than a guitarist well, I guess that, well that's the thing isn't it you know alan's influences have nothing to do with the guitar i mean he's, he's openly said he doesn't even really like the guitar for himself he wanted to be a sax player yeah right but um, his father couldn't afford a saxophone, so he he got a guitar and uh, and uh, has spent the rest of his life trying to make it sound like a guitar. But you know, bear in mind too, uh, you know, Holtzworth plays. He's a, he's a good violinist. Um, he's a really he's played violin on a lot of recordings, and he's really? great. He's wow. he thinks he he thinks he sucks, but he thinks he sucks at guitar. I mean, you know. He, Alan thinks he's lousy at everything. I mean, I don't know, Alan. I'm just saying I've just from what I've read in oh, interviews. Yeah, but, yeah, I've heard that, that kind of response. And yeah. he actually delved into pedal steel for a while. You can hear it on, um, on uh, it's all over the Road Games album. Not Road Games, uh, the Metal Fatigue album. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a song called In the Mystery, and you can hear the opening chords of pedal steel. And it's hard to pick because he disguises it. But, uh, yeah, what a, what a dude, you know. He's an yeah. amazing, amazing man, yeah. So you're so you're in your teens digging through this. When did you um when did you get some demos together and and uh, send them off and end up in Guitar Player in the Spotlight column? Um, I think that happened. I think I was about 
21, I think. Okay, yeah. 20 or 21, maybe just before I turned 21, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I'd been seeing this column in Guitar Player called Spotlight that, that Mike Varney was doing, and he was featuring unknown players, and, and I was really enjoying reading it, you know, reading about all these people he was discovering, and, mm-hmm. I don't know, it just dawned on me one day that I'd never seen any Australians in there. So I thought, well, what the hell, you know? So we, we, my, my cover band, we'd done a demo of about three songs, in a little local studio, little four-track studio, and I, all I did was I just grabbed the solos from those songs and put them on a cassette, and it would have taken him less than a minute to listen to it. Okay, yep. And so I just sent him that, and uh, I thought, what the hell, you know, had my girlfriend take a picture of me standing in front of the house and uh, with my guitar, and, and I sent him that, and um, lo and behold, he put me in the book. I'm pretty sure I'm the first Aussie to ever be featured in that column. Okay. I, I'd never seen anyone in there from Australia before then. And uh, he said some lovely stuff about me. It was really nice, you know. It was, it was yeah. Good. I was and, reading uh, it the other day. He said you, he thought of you as a world-class player. And at 21, that's that's a pretty big rap from the guy who had, by that stage, you already discovered Yngwie Malmsteen and I think Paul Gilbert wasn't very far away. That's that's a pretty big yeah, rap. Yeah, yeah. I was really blown out, you know. I love the fact that he said I was difficult to categorize. I remember yeah, yeah. that. Uh, I remember that article off by heart because I bought 87 copies of it. So, you know. <laughs> As you would. Oh, oh, I was so blown out. I was so excited. I, but the, the, I guess the thing was, it wasn't long after I got that article that um, I bought a little Fostex 4-track. Okay. It was a little 4-track cassette player, which back then was pretty much like, like uh, that was about as consumer as you could get. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was probably better better quality four track cassette players, but let's face it, back then you were either in a studio or you've got a four track. Yeah, yeah. And but it was definitely a great thing for me. I, I had no capacity to overdub until then, so I, at least at least now I could actually do some demos. Yeah. And I decided, well, all right, I'll do up some instrumental tunes, uh, which I was doing anyway just for fun. It wasn't like it was a big business plan or anything. Sure. But I thought, well, now that I've got this rave in this magazine, it was the only in, independent sort of comment on my playing that I'd ever had. I didn't have any press articles or anything like that. We were just a pub band playing around Castlemaine, you know. Yep. Was, no one was writing about us. And so I just did up a bunch of cassettes of some little tunes I wrote with me shredding like a nutcase all over them. And, <laughs> and I photocopied the uh, article and, uh, you know, hand-wrote letters and grabbed a whole bunch of names and addresses out of this magazine. It was called Sonics. Ah, and, yeah, uh, every that. year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was it was back in those days before the internet, and uh, every year they do it. They do a, a yearbook, and that actually had some names and addresses of management companies, record companies. So yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I sent it all off, sent a whole bunch out. I, I guess I might want to send a dozen out. Okay. And luckily, luckily one of them went to the Wheatley organisation, and and Glenn's company was just one of many management companies in there. And I thought, yeah. oh well, you get a get a tape, you know. And uh, Glenn was pretty much the only person that replied. And he just, I, the, I've still got the letter. It's awesome. And yeah. <laughs> uh, it just, yeah, it just said, dear Brett, I just got your tape. Please call me. And I thought, well, this can't be bad. You know, this can't be, you, you sort of like these ones. And uh, so I rang him up and he said he was the John Farnham wanted to put a pub band together and just do some gigs in between LRB commitments. And, oh, okay, uh, yep. I said, no, if I wanted to be involved. And I was like, hell yeah, I want to be involved. Yeah. Because, see, it's really interesting. This this timeline is really strange. I'm a gas bag. I'm sorry. I'll totally blow your podcast out just talking. But, Mate, uh, this is great. This is great. Yeah. But my, my friends and I, you know, 
we come from a real petrol head community here in Castlemaine, so we, we got it into our heads we we're going to drive all the way to Bathurst to see the car race. And so we drove there, we bought tickets, drove up there, and if you bought a ticket to the race, you had a, you, that ticket allowed you to get into the very first gig they were going to have at this newly constructed amphitheatre. Oh, okay. And it was sort of in this sort of hole in the ground at the bottom of the mountain. And... Uh, and, well, actually, at the top of the mountain, actually. And, uh, but it was at the bottom of the racetrack. It was a good 80-foot drop from the, the fence line wow. to the stage. And LRB were the first band that were going to play there. Oh, so, okay. And I'd already, I, was, I was always an LRB fan from day one, but I was a, really a fan with John in the band. I loved the Net album that had just come out, and mm -hmm. they were touring that. And I'd heard tracks off Uncovered, and I was just marvelling at this guy's voice. I thought, I wonder if this guy can sing like this live. Because, you know, being a heavy rock fan, I'd been to a lot of concerts, and the singers can never cut it live. They always dodge melodies and take a breath and, you know. Yep, sure. Or sometimes they can't sing at all, you know. They're, they're purely, purely products of the studio. It's disappointing. So anyway, we go to this uh, LRB gig, and after we get over the, the danger of almost being killed by stubbies being thrown at us from the lunatics up on the top of the mountain, you know, it was quite dangerous. I'm just watching the... I mean, LRB are always a great band. There's no doubt about that. I've always thought they were tremendous. But John, my God, he just... He obliterated everything he ever did on the album. So I thought, he's wow. holding back in the studio. I'd, I'd never heard or seen anyone perform like it. Like, he was like a pit bull. He would not let go of the crowd until he'd won them over. It was so inspiring. And to hear the guy sing, I'd just never heard anything like it. I was like, the greatest rock singer or now i know the greatest singer i've ever heard that's for sure mm -hmm. and then yeah it was it literally must have only been a few months later i got the response to my cassette wow. letter thing and i'm in the guy's house you know so we're, i'm auditioning for him fantastic so yeah what a blast this is amazing timing as well because he's just about to leave lrb and he's Next solo album, Whispering Jack, is goes on to be one of the biggest sellers in Australia and, a, and just a massive hit. How, how oh, was that timing? It's, it's the biggest seller in Australia, Matt. It's the biggest selling album of all time in this country. Oh, okay, and that's, okay. that's this side of, that's including rumours and, and thriller and everything wow. like that. Um, but yeah, the thing was, I went down to, to meet up with John and Ross Fraser, his producer at John's house. I think he was living in Camberwell or something like that. So this was uh, late 85, mm -hmm. and they were doing a, they, they explained to me that they were going to do an album the next year, and they were working on some demos, and they, they were working on a version of Let Me Out, which ended up on the album, and, and there was a space in that where they wanted a guitar solo, and they thought, oh, well, we'll play a solo on this, and we'll see what you do. Yep. And so I blew a couple of solos on it, and I got lucky and didn't hit any clams, and they liked what I did. And... Uh, and I remember um, Ross said, well, what would you play in the verses? And I said, oh, man, it's a bit hard to know. Like, there's, there's no vocal. You know, I don't know what to do. Uh -huh. And John said, oh, I'll chuck a vocal on for you. And he just grabbed a 57 and stood there in his living room and sang it like it was the last song he'd ever sing in his life, which, you know, now I know that's just how he sings. <laughs> but the thing that blew me away later on was I remember that the song was in the key of A. The demo was in the key of A. Okay. Whereas the, the album version's in the key of F sharp. So he sang a version of that song a minor third up from oh, where wow. the album Wow. And he was hitting stuff that just dogs would have trouble hearing. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was just, I was so blown out. I don't think I played anything. I just was in shock. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was something else. What a, 
what a fantastic thing you know to happen to meet to meet a guy like John and to still be working with him to this day it's unbelievable it's fantastic um can we talk about let me out a little bit more that's that solo and particularly um from a live concert you did with the fun band i think it must have been around 87 i think it was in brisbane from memory um no melbourne melbourne gig it was yeah. a melbourne oh, did you, you, you saw us in melbourne uh, brisbane did you or uh... no no, no I, I saw the simulcast and i thought yeah, it was the brisbane. Concert, i think the, i think the concert was melbourne okay so. Now this this is uh, this is part of Australian guitar folklore now, and Michael Dolce and Chris Brooks, another one of um, <laughs> one of my guests here, uh, both bring it up. I remember it. Um, so we get to the "Let Me Out" solo, and um, yeah, there's a bunch of us, and we're pro we're probably a similar age, myself and these guys, and we all saw you on TV. Gets to the "Let Me Out" solo, and you you unleash this thing, and yeah. <laughs> If you listen to our other interviews, Michael and Chris, they both speak about this at length and what, this, oh God. what and a both profound those, And moment. both those guys would eat me alive if they did the same solo oh, now, you know. I think they might say something else. here's the interesting thing about the timing of things uh -huh. so I guess you consider like that that I think that aired in 1986 I think it was the same year we released the album because okay. it all escalated so quickly it was either 86 or 87 say yeah um, when we did that show and they they did the live broadcast now I guess for the timing there's no Netflix there's no internet there's yeah. no playstations absolutely you've got TV and you've got network TV you yep. haven't even got cable, so you've got what maybe what eight channels, all up, all over the country. Yeah. So if you're doing a a live simulcast, there's a really good chance that a lot of the population will watch it because there's nothing else on to watch. Absolutely. And I suppose you tie it in with the fact that at the time the album was going absolutely ballistic. So yeah, yep. a lot of people are going to watch it because most of them probably bought the album. Mm -hmm. And then you combine it with the fact that you're working with a music with a person as amazing as John Farnham who says, oh, it's a, it's a, I don't know, what is it, a 16-bar solo? Let's make it a 32-bar solo. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, who else would do that? I mean, John's just, that's just John. He loves, he has such respect for the musicians that he works with. He's always trying to give you more of his stage time. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of other artists of much lesser caliber than him as a musician would probably be finding, trying to find a way to push you back into the dark, you know? Uh-huh. 
Whereas he's like, no, come out here, get some sugar, take the spotlight, take he's, it. He seems to really dig it, yeah, absolutely. He loves it. And so it's just a, co- a combination of those unique events. You've got a pretty captive audience because they're not really doing anything else. I mean, most people are going to be glued to the TV. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a hot album anyway, so, I mean, a lot of people are going to be watching it. And you've got a, an amazing guy like John who says, let's double the length of the solo, shred your butt off, have fun, <laughs> you know. And, and I suppose at that time, you know, uh, you know the sad, the sad thing is I, I was actually like I was actually a really melodic, tasteful player. You know I was capable of playing like really tasteful melodic solos, but yep. for some reason I got caught up in the whole speed demon thing. Maybe out of insecurity, I don't know. And so, but I guess you know when someone gives you a 32 bar solo like that and they just want it to start at 10 and go to 11, then the last thing they need is a blues player. So you know, <laughs> I, guess, I guess I was. I was the right man for the job at the time, you know. Yeah, so yeah. cool. The um, I mean, there's some very melodic stuff that I want to talk about too. But that that solo, yeah, I was I was going to ask before, were you aware at the time, or maybe I guess even since, of the the profound effect that had on a bunch of Australian teenagers learning guitar, seeing something like that live on TV? Oh no, no. I mean, we, were, we were just playing. We were doing that solo every night. You know, we were touring constantly, and uh-huh. that was that was what I did. You know, so I didn't think much of it. It was just it was another gig, and yeah. and I was just more worried about this stupid camera they had strapped to my guitar. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about you know, that. <laughs> you know, back in the back in the days before nanotechnology, it was like yeah, you had a you had like a video camera. And a big ass cable coming off it, so yeah, it was, it was compromising to say the least. Yeah, I, I need to point out for our listeners. Um, here's the thing, Brett. It's not as if the solo wasn't insane enough, but there, yeah, there's this camera strapped to the lower <laughs> bout of your, I guess, near where the the um, pickup. Uh, yeah, I think it was sort of the, somewhere the, down the, at the end. I think it was the bottom cutaway of the strap you know yeah. like that bottom horn of the strap. So and it's not yeah, like a GoPro whole... or something small. It's like a fairly chunky bit of gear yeah it's a big lump and thing and it's got a big cable coming up yeah it. so big okay. coaxial cable so the whole gig i was kind of with my left arm i was holding the neck up of the oh, guitar wow. i just wanted to drag it down to the to the floor so yeah yeah so but you know the, the show must go on so. <laughs> <laughs> well it certainly did man when it, when the when the editing cut to the the guitar cam that was just the best thing ever yeah, it's good fun. I, I suppose we weren't really seeing many shots like that back then. No so. way. I mean, it's, it's every, every kid and his iPhone's doing it on YouTube now, but back in uh, the mid-'80s, it was, it was absolutely spectacular. Yeah, if only we'd had a GoPro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, some of the other um, Farnham hits um, around that time, maybe a little bit later, um, things like Two Hearts and That's Freedom had very melodic solos and um, very memorable melodies. Um, and they were both slide solos, those two I've mentioned. When when was slide part of your playing? Um, uh, Little River Band, once again. I remember they, they released a song called Every Day of My Life. Now, it must have been... That's off the first album. Mm-hmm. And Rick Formosa plays the melody on a slide. And I remember... That was all I saw. He's got this steel thing on his finger. I love the sound of it. Because I think Rick was heavily influenced by Lyle George from Little Feet. Okay, yeah, yeah. And um, who's you know one of the most beautiful slide players that ever lived and... So I went to the music shop and I bought a slide, bought a chrome slide and had a go at it. And, and of course, it was the most god-awful noise you've ever heard, you know, just <laughs> dreadful. And um, a mate of mine here in town, 
Glenn Quill, Quilly. Everyone just had E chucked on the ends of their names back then. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was talking to Quilly about it, and he he said uh, Quilly was older than me, so he had, he had a little bit more experience. So I, I still couldn't ask him about chords and scales, unfortunately, because he, in that regard, he didn't know any more than me. But uh, he he'd had more experience as a as a musician okay. working. And he said, oh no, he said you got to tune your guitar to a chord like open A or open E. He said that's much better. And um, and so I ended up getting a, a cheap Les Paul Custom, and I tuned it to open. I think it was open A. Okay. Yep. And uh, and I'm, I experimented with open E as well. And he was right. Like at least then I could play it on stage. We could do a blues, and I could just sort of bash away on it. Yeah, sure. And develop some control, some intonation, some muting. And then after a while, I I thought I I had enough of a handle on it to go back to standard tuning. But of course, before that, I got I should regress. Um. I'm watching this show and uh, this evening rock show and uh, Joe Walsh is on mm -hmm. and he's doing a version of Rocky Mountain Way and he, uh, I notice he's playing slide and he's got it on his second finger, on the middle finger, yep. the finger. And and just like I said, young kids, they see stuff and I went, okay, so I suppose you put it on that finger, that's the way it goes. Uh -huh. And of course, like, you know, these days I realise that hardly anyone wears it on that finger. It's like, I think there's me, Bonnie Raitt, Bonnie Jeff Raitt, Beck, yep. Doug Walsh and... And uh, that's about it, you know, that, hardly anybody else. That's pretty good company, though, if you can. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's just unusual. Like, yeah. you can put it on any finger you want. I mean, Dave Hole from Perth, he puts it on his first finger and plays over the top. Over the like top, yeah, that's right. Lap steel, so uh -huh. no rules, you know. Yeah. But um, when I went back to standard tuning, I really missed that major third interval you get between the, uh, the second and third string when you tune to open E. And I just looked at it and thought, I wonder if it would work. So I just tilted it, angled it, and you could you could actually get that interval. And it took a long time to get it to where I could do it with any degree of accuracy, but uh, but eventually it worked out. And it's mm -hmm. sort of become a cornerstone of what I do. And I never saw anyone else do it in all my travels. I've seen other people do it recently, yep. um, which is probably just coincidence. I doubt it's anything to do with me. But um, but I saw an old on YouTube, I saw a clip of Jeff Beck back in the 70s, and he's doing it. So, you know, this guy's Jeff Beck. What can I say? The bloody the governor. You know? <laughs> he probably did that and went, eh, fair enough, and then moved on to something else groundbreaking. So, yeah, unbelievable. But yeah, yeah, just it, it, they, all these things sort of worked out where I could go back to just playing in standard tuning, but still, thanks to just tilting it, I could get a little taste of open tuning in there, if you like. Okay. Know? Yep. And um, so you're not swapping out guitars when you when you want to play a slide tune. You're just you're keeping it in standard tune and the same guitar. Yeah, yeah. I just do it on the same guitar. Which, um, I mean, yeah. You give me a guitar in an open, uh, an open tuning, and I'm lost. You know, it's like sure. I don't know what I'm doing. So how do you go with your action? Like, you know, a lot of people like to jack up the action for slide. How do you go? What what's your yeah, action like? I should say. It's a compromise. My action's not. It's not insanely low, to be honest. It's okay. not. Not as low as uh, I mean I've I've played well I played Sean Lane's guitar when I met him many years ago yeah and Sean's action was on the frets I mean it was okay. so low uh, it was beautiful to play I mean effortless to play okay, but, yeah. uh, but but you'd never be able to play slide on it so sure. um, and I was I was using eleven to fifty twos for many years and that was a good compromise because uh, the heavier strings allowed you to have a slightly lower action and support the weight of the slide. Okay, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, for the past few years, I've gone back to I went to ten to fifty-two, just because you know my hands are getting older and a bit more creaky. You know what I mean? It's like I don't want to <laughs> sure. I don't want to tempt tempt fate. 
get any uh, troubles or anything like that. So, but sure. yeah, it's just it's a bit of a compromise, but but it's not bad, you know. I mean, look, if I was recording, I'd probably chuck heavier strings on and bump the action up just to get a better tone. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the compromise live, you can just whip out the slide and play it. Then it's kind of cool. You don't carry two guitars around yeah, with nice, you. Nice, nice. What, um, what were you playing? What guitars were you playing around that, that time? So during your first stint with John? Strat, always. I, 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 uh, it had to be a Strat because of Richie Blackmore, unfortunately. And, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and you know, after all these years, I think, to be honest, I think I, was, I should have been a Gibson man. I think uh, Gibsons are much, particularly SGs. I, I bought an SG about three years ago, and, and wow, you know, I, should have, I think I should have been playing an SG, but I... Because of Richie, it had to be a strat, had to be a whammy bar. So, okay. uh, so yeah, that was my poor mother. I just sort of browbeat her into buying a Fender Strat for me all those years ago. Big investment back then. Sure. And um, but I promised her I'd never give it up, and I never did. And the guitar's still hanging on the walls. So there you go. That's so. fantastic. What what year is that? I think it's like an early, uh, like a mid seventies type of thing, okay, like seventy three, yeah. seventy four, that sort of deal. Yeah, big headstock. Yeah. Yeah, your classic headstock. Although the neck, there's a different neck on it now. But um, okay. But uh, yeah, it was your, your classic headstock strat. Yeah. And what about Sun, red sunburst? You know, like I said, I was just trying to get as close to Richie's look as I could. Yeah, cool. What about amps and pedals? Um, well, uh, with Richie, it had to be a Marshall, didn't it? You know, so so I just waited until I started. I struggled through with. Um, a Jade Clubman, which was an Australian-built amplifier, I think. Okay, yep. Uh, dreadful piece of work. Really horrible, <laughs> nasty piece of work. But it was loud, and um, I, I eventually got a fuzz wah pedal, and that at least made it sound a bit more rock, you know, the fuzz. Yep. And, um, but then I just, I just decided I've got to go for this Marshall. And there was a store down in Frankston named Guitar Village, and I got a, a, uh, the most beautiful old... Like it was a 1970. That was the year it was made. I looked wow. inside it on a piece of paper. A 1970 super 100 watt super lead. Oh, brilliant. And um, that amp is now owned by David Carr, who's a fantastic guitar player producer in Melbourne. And David ended up with it. I think he got it secondhand from. I sold it while I was in the States, and I was just broke and needed cash. And and the amp had actually sort of deteriorated. Was probably just needed in need of a service and new tubes or something. I don't sure. know, but uh, but I sold it like an idiot. And uh, yeah, God bless David. I was doing a session about a year and a half ago, and as it turned out, he was in the studio the night before, and with the amp, and he left it there for me to play through the next day. So I got to see it again. But nice. uh, he has absolutely no intentions whatsoever of selling it back to me. <laughs> At least you had a you had a will on there. <laughs> And I don't blame him. So, yeah, I wouldn't sell it either. So, and he loves it. So it's just really nice to know it's gone to a good home. But, yeah, uh, cool. yeah that amp, that amp was a great amp. Wow. Were you using any pedals in front of it? 
yeah, I ended up, uh, I ended up, I also, I got the matching uh, quad box for it, which was a slant front grey covered quad box, oh, yeah. Marshall box. Yeah, cool. And I ended up getting a uh, Dodd preamp, and it was the one with, it just had the knob, it didn't even have an on-off switch. It was okay. just the and it was a clean boost. It was like if you plugged it into a clean amp and turned it up, it just made that louder. So it wasn't a distortion pedal as such. But it just hit the front of the amp with more more input. So it was almost like having a supercharged humbucker in a strap. Wow, cool. And and the other weird thing was um, a friend of mine gave me this weird thing. It was a line impedance booster. So it was like a cigar-shaped thing that had a, a male jack on one end and a female jack on the other. And guys used to use them on mic cables that had uh, quarter-inch jacks on them to boost input oh, okay. impedance if they used long cables. Yeah. And I stuck it in the front of that Marshall, and it just did everything. It just totally took the bottom end and just compressed it. Not compressed it, but focused it. Okay. Like yep. before, if I didn't put that in, the bottom end was quite woolly and undefined, and as soon as I shoved that thing in with the Dodd preamp, wow, it was just amazing. In fact, I had it built into the input of the amp because I kept walking past it and breaking it all the time. Okay. It poke, poke out of the front of the amp. I'm not sure yeah. if, if Dave even knows it's there or whether he had it taken out. I'm not sure. Oh, he may wow. have got rid of it. But, uh, That's cool. But here's the thing. Like, I mean, I was listening to some old cassettes of our cover band from God knows how many years ago just to listen to the sound. And the, the playing's got awful, of course. But but I after I got that combination, I never paid one moment of thought to guitar sound after that all i thought about was playing because the sound was done i was finished i was okay. done if i could wow. if i could plug into an amp now and get that tone again i'd be as happy it just it sounds like the best les paul plugged into a marshall and it's a strat you'd never guess it's a strat so yeah just i just got lucky and got a great amp and the right stuff to plug into it and off i went cool and was that your rig for the um for whispering jack for that album yeah yeah although we sort of you know, we didn't really capitalise on the true sound of the amp for that album. We were sort of... It was, it was a strange sort of album. Like, I, I was very inexperienced. That was the first time I'd ever been in a proper studio. Sure. So I'd never played a funk tune or anything like that in my life ever, you know. Uh -huh. So I was very limited in what I could do. But, you know, much thanks to John and Ross, they really sort of coached me through it and encouraged me. Yeah. Um, but uh, David Hirschfelder had already put... 117 million keyboard parts on everything so <laughs> so and they're all brilliant hershey's yeah, a genius yeah you know i mean that's i'm just i'm just saying he's so such an amazing musician i mean it almost didn't need guitar on it but uh <clears throat> but um so i was sort of struggling to find something to do but uh but uh yeah that we did use that amp anyway yeah cool i've i've read um interviews with you where you're saying around this stage for your career, you're still not 100% sure um, what scales you're using. You've developed your ear, but um, yeah, you're not even sure what the scales you're using. You're just still using your ear to navigate around the place. Is that true? Yeah, I didn't know what they were called. I didn't know the names of the modes, but I could play modally. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I could definitely... I mean, I, I certainly knew my way around Mixolydian and Dorian, so the, yeah. the sort of more blues-based scales were great. Yeah, sure. A uh, little bit of Lydian, a little bit of uh, Phrygian, you know, I could sort of dabble in a little bit of harmonic minor and all that sort of stuff. But I, I just I, I just identified the sounds by intervals, so I didn't... Uh, my interval recognition was really good. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, you could hit 
a, a, a tonic and hit any note against it, and, and within a split second, I could tell you exactly what interval it was. Okay, yeah. But um, so well, 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 fair enough because that's how I survived. You know, yeah, that's how yeah. I managed to even be a musician was just purely by ear. But but um, yeah, it wasn't until I went to America and met T.J. Helmrich that because um, T.J. had studied. Yep. We'd, we'd be jamming, and I just instinctively start playing E Mixolydian, I guess, and. He remarked on it one day and said, man, he said, you really like playing Mixolydian a lot. And I said, I do. <laughs> and he said, don't you know what that is? And I said, no, what is it? He said, it sounds like a disease that rabbits get, you know, <laughs> and um, mixomatosis. And, uh, and uh, so he, you know, he would explain the scales to me. And I said, well, I know the scales. I just didn't know the names, and, and which, of course, I had to learn them once I started teaching. But uh, and then he showed me other scales. He showed me the melodic minor scale and things like that. So, yeah, it was fascinating. I had no idea. Wow. I was desperate to learn, but just no one to teach me, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then the, and then the silly thing was I ended up becoming a working professional, you know, and and uh, and I was so – like when I, when I first worked with John, when I first worked with him, Sam C was playing guitar in the band. I wasn't the only guitar player. Oh, okay, yep. And I was just in awe of the fact that Sam was there, and I was I was – desperate to ask him questions mm -hmm. but i was just, i was just too shy and too embarrassed i thought you know if i go up to sam and say well hey sam can you show me some chords i was afraid he probably would have said sure what do you want to know you know he's a lo lovely guy but i was afraid he'd look at me and say well if you don't know these chords what are you doing in this band then and i, I was so worried about that that i was afraid to ask anybody anything so, so yeah it's a, a shame man i really I'm not regretting everything I got, that's for sure. I got a dream run out of music, that's for sure, yeah, to be sure. in John's band. But uh, but just as a musician, I I really wanted to learn. I wanted to learn more. Still do. You know, I'm still trying to learn. All right, that's part one of my interview with Brett Carson. We will return in our next episode where Brett talks about his extended career in the United States, uh, mainly based on the west coast in LA working with some amazing musicians creating some uh, lifelong partnerships and friendships as well which is really great uh, talk also about Brett's return to Australia and uh, playing with John Farnham once again to sold out crowds all around Australia alright you know everyone I've met who actually who knows who knows Brett has when, when they speak of him they don't talk about his guitar playing or his technique well, they do, but by and large, what I'm hearing is what, what a generous and humble man Brett actually is. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's evident when you hear him speak. So it's really cool to get him on the show and, and hear more about his, his story. So yeah, next week, tune in for part two of this interview. Hey, that's, uh, that's about it for this week. Thank you so much for joining me. Remember, we are on Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, I've just, uh, I've just made a Twitter account for the podcast. So we'll see how that goes. I don't know. I've, I've, uh, I'm, not, I'm not into the Twitter sphere. So I'm just uh, dipping, my, dipping my foot in. So we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, we're on there too. Remember, you can get all of our episodes for free at iTunes or Stitcher, or if you go to the guitarspeakpodcast.libson.com, you'll find all our episodes there for free to check out as well. All right, hey, if you're enjoying the episodes, please, uh, would you consider sharing them on your social networks? Uh, give us a like, give us some comments. We love to hear from our listeners, and um, yeah, it helps us get the Guitar Speak podcast word out there. 
So uh, thank you. We really appreciate that. All right, I'm out of here. Have a great week. Go play some guitar or something. I'll catch you next time. This is Matt Wakeling from the Guitar Speak podcast. Bye now.